Well, Second Peter, uh, here is where we find ourselves this morning. We've spent a couple of weeks studying the first several verses of this chapter, thinking through how do we get our sanctification going again. Uh, and really, the conclusion that we came to is that your ability to grow in your spiritual walk is directly connected to your vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when you see him clearly, that is when spiritual growth takes place within your life. And I think that uh, last week we saw a really good, very clear picture of that, did we not? I think last week was just a very special week all around. Um, I I don't know what your impressions were of the week last week, but uh, as I walked away, it was one of the best church services that I have ever been part of there in the first hour with the celebration that we had for our pastor. Um, Just really a wonderful time as we celebrated the work that the Lord has done here through his ministry at this church in each of our lives. And it was really a great, uh, great Sunday. And even though it, it poured outside, um, it was still a lot of fun. And I, I don't know about all of you, but I, for one, was grateful that Jonathan Rourke did follow the instructions and let us out a little early. Uh, because as I was sitting there under the tent, nice and dry, I saw this long line of people in the absolute downpour waiting for their In-N-Out burger. Um, but it, it was kind of fun because the rain really forced the whole church in under Underneath the tent out there, people couldn't be spread out because everybody wanted to be dry. And so everybody was out there together, and it was just kind of a fun time of fellowship. It's it's not often that you have a huge church feel like a small church, uh, and last Sunday was one of those times where it just kind of felt like this was our family. This is our home, uh, this is our pastor, and this is our Lord, and it's him that we worship, and we're grateful to do that together. And it, it was really just a wonderful time of fellowship together as we celebrated that. And I think... What I was most encouraged by was kind of the, the theme that was printed in giant banners all over campus that kind of set our hearts and our minds where they really should be set. That what we were actually celebrating last week, and this is not to take away anything, uh, to, to take anything away from the accomplishment of ministering in one place for 50 years, but what we were celebrating last week wasn't even so much Pastor John. It really was the work of the word that has been accomplished in each of our lives and hearts as he has so faithfully exposited it and explained it to each of us. And I think that is the right focus for us to have, uh, that when we see the word of God, when we hear the word of God, when we begin to understand it, it does do work in our hearts. And it's that work that allows us to see Christ and changes us to be fashioned into his image. And I think that's really a big part of what made last week so special. We, we obviously love our pastor. We've all been impacted by him. We've all come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ better because of him. And that's what, that's what causes us to love our pastor as he loves Christ. And it's natural for us to feel appreciation for the one who shows us the Savior. But the means by which he has done that is by the preaching of God's word. And the reason for that is because it is the work of the word to show us the person of Christ. And that is really a perfect point of intersection for us in our study in the book of 2 Peter, because that ends up being Peter's point here in chapter 1. That if it is really the vision of Christ that allows us to grow in our knowledge of God, then we must see him. Well, how do we see Christ? 
We see him in the pages of the scripture, and that's what we've been talking about. You see, when you know Christ, you begin to love him, and when you love him, you obey him, and that really is the whole process of spiritual Christ. And, and the trick there is getting to know Christ, and I can't say it enough, that is the purpose of God's word, and that's what we've been looking at. Just to review, look at your Bibles there in chapter 1. Peter says in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the way that grace and peace are multiplied is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we then find God's divine power, his provision, everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of his person who called us by his own glory and excellence, uh, and, and, and it's by himself that he then grants to us his precious and magnificent promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, that's God's purpose, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And it's only after you begin to understand who Christ is and receive the benefits of what he does in enabling your spiritual growth that you are then able to begin applying yourself as well, which is what he says there in verse 5. Now, for this reason also, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And then he says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. What he's saying there in that first section is that your growth will take place as you are clearly exposed to Christ and grow in your knowledge of him. And as you grow in your knowledge of him, you will grow in your love for him. And as you grow in your love for him, you will begin to naturally desire to obey him. And that's the process of what spiritual growth looks like all the time, every time. And so the question for us this morning as we kind of reapproach this chapter, reapproach this text, and in light of what we celebrated last week, is how do we gain exposure to our Lord Jesus Christ? The way that that exposure is gained, simply put, is through the work of the Word. It is the word of God that gives us the exposure to Christ that we need. And, and Peter was very eager to show his readers the person of Christ in the word. He says in verse 12, I'm always going to be ready to remind you of these things, even though you know them and have been established in the truth, I'm going to be reminding you. He says in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He says again there in verse 15, well, verse 14, he says, I'm going to be dying soon. I'm, I'm going away knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is very close, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And then he says it again in verse 15, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, after I've died, that you will be able to call these things to mind. What's he saying there? He's saying, I want to remind you. He says it once. He says it twice. He says it three times in those four verses. I want you to remember those things about Jesus that have been written down for you that will enable you to grow in the knowledge of him. 
And that's the way he introduces the section that we're looking at here today in verses 16 through 21, where he talks all about the nature of Scripture and its impact in allowing us to clearly see Christ. You see, the point I'm trying to make here right now as we get started is that it wasn't lost in Peter's mind that there was an essential place for the study of God's Word, the priority of God's Word to the process of your spiritual growth. Because it is through the word of God that you begin to see Christ. And that is the work of the word to reveal to us and to show us the person of Christ. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning as we begin to look at the work of the word that enables us to see Christ is this. How exactly does the word do its work? We talked all about it last week, the work of the word, the work of the word. But the question that I walked away with in my mind that I wanted to study more was this. How does that word begin to do its work in us? And I think Peter's going to answer that question for us here this morning. You see, God's word is a powerful instrument that is used by him to shape your spiritual life. And I think it's important for us to understand how it works, okay? Now, we have to start by just sketching out a little bit of theology here because that really is the structure that Peter's going to use. Theologians talk all the time about how that the word of God is inspired, okay? That's a fancy way of saying that it came directly from him. It is his word that he owns that he gave to us. It's not just a book. It is a compilation of God's words directly to us. It's inspired. And if it came from God, then it can't just be inspired. It must also be inerrant, which is a word that means it cannot be with error. Okay? If it came from God, then it has to be absolutely perfect. It is inspired and it is inerrant. Okay? Now, that's kind of the way we think about the word of God. And coming out of those two big theological concepts are four separate attributes that enable God's word to do its work in us, okay? Here are, the, here are the four attributes, and all four of these are going to be found, and it is inspired. That makes it necessary for us. We must have it, okay? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. It is second, not just necessary, but it is also authoritative. Because it is inspired and inerrant, it is the final authority, Third, because it's inspired and inerrant, it is also sufficient for us. And fourth, because it is inspired and inerrant, and, and inerrant, say that 10 times, it is also clear. Okay, And it is these four attributes that enable the word to do its work in us. First, it is necessary, it's authoritative, it is sufficient, and it's clear. And I want us to see how that these four things that theologians will commonly talk about as being the attributes of God's word that make it able to do what it does, they're actually all four here in this text before us this morning. We're going to march through this text and look at all of these things this week and next and just ask ourselves the question, how how does the word of God do its work in us? But just so we're all on the same page, I, I want to just read these uh, six or seven verses here and show you how that these four attributes map on to this text, okay? So verse 16, he talks about the necessity of scripture. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we didn't just make stuff up and tell you a bunch of junk. What we told you is something that you need. There's a necessity there. 
Verses 17 through 19, he talks about the authority inherent in God's word and how that that authority is actually superior to Peter's own experience. He says, for when he received honor and glory from the God, the father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were on with him on the holy mountain. So we have a prophetic word made more sure. It's authoritative. Even better than Peter's experience of seeing Christ in his glory was what the scriptures say about Christ in his glory. Okay. Then he goes on, he talks about a sufficiency in verse 19. He says, this word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. It is sufficient to guide, guard, direct, and challenge and encourage. It is, it is inspired and therefore profitable for rebuke, for correction, for training and instruction and in righteousness, right? The scriptures are sufficient for all of our needs. That's verse 19. And then in verses 20 and 21, he talks about its clarity. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, the scriptures are clear. And as we're going to see together, it's really these four attributes of God's word, its necessity, its authority, its sufficiency, and its clarity that allow it to impact us so deeply. It is those attributes that allow us to clearly see Christ in its pages without any sort of contradiction, question, or need. We are able to see Christ because scripture is the way that it is. And so I want us to really break this down and just think through, how does the word do its work. It's a great follow-up to the celebration we had last week, and I want us to spend some time thinking through that because it's, it's right here in this text before us, and it's the next thing that comes in our study of Second Peter. So let's look at them one at a time. Okay, so first we'll start with the necessity of God's word and the fact that it's the necessity of that word that enables its work. Is it cold in here to anybody? Yes. It's really cold in here. Uh, can I get somebody in the back to just turn up? I'm seeing people like wrap up in their suit coats and it's, you know, last week John Rourke took his coat off. This week I'm looking for a second one to put on. <laughs> Funny story, my daughter Emma um, is kind of home this week with a, with a bit of a head cold and so she thinks because she has a cold that that justifies her in turning up the thermostat on her own and she's realized that she can now reach it by herself. <laughs> So I'm walking around the house and I keep finding thermostats turned up to 90 degrees <laughs> and it's really warm. I woke up this morning and it's one of those Nest thermostats that kind of learns the patterns, you know? So I woke up this morning and my house was 83 <laughs> and I said, oh, this is not going to work. So um, if only she were here this morning. I'm sorry. She's not. Good. I think we're, we're in good shape. It's 54? Yeah, that's cold. You know, I, I've been thoroughly Californianized, okay? Good. Well, now that we know where we're going and the heat is turned on, let's, uh, let's jump into this together, okay? First, the necessity of the word enables its work. And here's the reality that Peter's going to show us here in verse 16. This doctrine of necessity, as theologians talk about it, the doctrine of necessity. It, this doctrine basically says that our need... For the special revelation of God's word, um, the special revelation of Christ, that knowledge of Christ cannot be found for us anywhere else besides God's word. 
Okay? The reason that the word of God is so necessary is because it shows us a picture of Christ that we cannot get anywhere else. Okay? Now, there are some things about God that, that we can know apart from Scripture. We can know things about natural morality that God has imprinted in our hearts. We can know that God exists, for instance, through general revelation. But there's a lot of things like the gospel and the will of God and the person of Christ that we cannot have, we cannot find, we cannot know without having access to the scriptures, okay? The scriptures are very, very necessary because without them, we cannot know God, that we cannot know anything about God that we need to know in order to be saved and to come to know him. So, so we have as people this desperate need to know Christ. Because without knowing Christ, we cannot possibly hope to grow in the knowledge of God because it is Christ who shows us the Father. We have this desperate need and the scriptures then automatically meet that need by being the fountainhead, the source that shows us the person of Christ. And therefore they are essential to our spiritual life and they are necessary to us. You see, the word of God, it's always there, and it's always ready to guide us with answers to our most basic needs. And this is the bottom line here, that you must know God's word in order to grow. Romans 10, 17 talks about this idea of the necessity of God's word being key and fundamental to it doing its work in us. It says, how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You see, it's the delivery of God's word that becomes essential for the foundational elements of spiritual life. If you would grow in grace, if you, as Peter says back up in chapter 1, verse 2, if you would see grace and peace being multiplied to you, what must you have there in verse 2? You must have knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we get that knowledge? If that's our need and there's this great necessity that exists, how do we get it? It's through the word of God, right? It's, it's very necessary to our spiritual growth. It is essential for our spiritual life. And, and Peter knows this. And this is the reason why in verses 12 through 15, he says three different times, I want to remind you about the truth of Christ. I want to remind you about the things that have been written in scripture for you by God so that you might know him. And he had already engaged in this work in explaining those scriptures to these people. And he, he wanted to remind them of that. He knew exactly what these people needed. And he also knew what they didn't need. Look there at verse 16. He says, for, let's start with the things you don't need. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we knew what you did need because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, what you don't need is a bunch of false stuff. What you need is the true thing. What you don't need is the philosophy of men. What you actually need is the written truth of God's word. Scripture is very necessary for you. And this is true for us. We don't need more falsehood, right? We have plenty of that around us already. It's interesting to see the words that Peter chooses to use here. These, when he talks about cleverly devised tales, he uses two words in Greek. The first one is sophizo, right? What does that sound like? Sophistry, right? Or sophisticated. It's these, it's these tricky or crafty or subtle ideas, right? It's, it's someone who proclaims that's what a sophist is. Someone who proclaims something that's true, but they know it's not true. 
and yet they do it anyway. They're, they're subtle, crafty, tricky ideas. That's, that's the idea of that word there. And that word for tales is the word muthos. What's that sound like? Myth, right? It's, it's the ancient word for a myth. It's a word that talks about legends or fables. He's talking about sophisticated myths, a story that is passed off as true, even though it has absolutely no connection to history. And 2 Timothy 4.4 talks about exactly this kind of idea. It uses the same words. And, and Paul says in 2 Timothy, the kinds of things that people in the last days will want to hear. He says, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening tr- to what they do need, the truth, and will wander off into what they don't need, myths. So Paul and Peter say exactly the same thing here, that there is a profound necessity that there be exposure in our daily life to the truth of God's word. It is what we need and must have for our spiritual growth. What we don't need is a bunch of sophisticated myths. And even though our world is very different from Peter's world, there's still a whole bunch of sophisticated myths that run around in our view, are there not? I mean, we think about the evolutionary theory of our day that started over 100 years ago, and we see the fruit of that being borne out in governmental systems such as socialism, right? You see, ideas have consequences. They really do. That when there's an idea, a a sophisticated myth that man was not created, but rather he evolved over a period of time, that has profound ramifications in in the realm of real life. You see, the ideas always have results. You take a myth in today's world, like postmodernism, that there is no one true, absolute truth, that everything is true, and there are multiple ways to God. And you see the kind of profound impact that that has had upon the nature of the church and theology. These kind of myths that we are surrounded by, they they have real life consequences in our world. And, And Peter's saying here, you don't need to believe more of those myths, those sophisticated falsehoods. What you need is the truth of God's word. This was really driven home to me earlier this week. I was reading some news articles about different things, and I've got my Apple News and my blog aggregators, you know, and and they all um, are set to pull in both conservative and liberal sorts of news publications. Because I don't even know what to believe anymore when I read the news. And I'm saying, it, I mean, I can read the same thing, but, but this person over here says thing A happened, while this person over here says thing A didn't happen. And I'm saying, which actually is it? So I try to read both sides and try to figure out what's really going on here, what's the point of commonality. And so I'm reading some of these very liberal news articles. And as I'm reading them, I'm thinking to myself, how in the world could they actually believe what they're espousing here in these opinion pieces? How could they believe that? Because it seems to be so foolish. The reason that it seems to be so foolish to me is because I'm starting with a fundamentally different worldview, right, than they are. And the result is that when you start from different places, you end up in two very different places, and therefore the place that I end up in my perspective on the situation is extremely different from the place where they've ended up. And I asked the question, well, how how could they think the way they think? And the reason is because of the basis that they started with. The foundation that they started with is a sophisticated myth where they believe things about the nature of the world and the way things work that just simply are not so. But they've been convinced that they are because they don't have the right foundation. They haven't started out with the necessary foundation for assessing the way the world actually is. 
That's the problem. See, ideas have consequences. And ideas always form foundations for life. And if you get that foundation wrong, you end up professing to be wise. And at the end of the day, all you do is prove that you're really a fool because you don't see correctly. Why? Because your foundation wasn't the right one. You see, in life, because of our fallen nature, we all start out with the wrong foundation. And we are all constantly being barraged by a stream of false information, nearly all of it being launched from a base of falsehood. And the only way to counter all of that falsehood, that bad information, and the, the nearly constant stream of, of wrong thinking is to be grounded and rooted in the truth. And what is the source of truth? It is for us, the scripture, and that must become our foundation. You begin to see why the scriptures are so very necessary for us. You cannot grow. You cannot grow in the way you think about God. You cannot grow in your knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, if your foundational source of getting your information is wrong or false. The scriptures are necessary. It doesn't matter how cleverly devised your system is. If it's not the truth and grounded in truth, then it's a myth. And Peter understands the, the importance of having the right foundation. That's why he says here, I want you to focus back upon the word of God in verse 16. Because when we came and brought that truth in that word to you, we weren't talking about sophisticated myths. What we were talking about is the truth of how God has revealed himself. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he says. And that's exactly what they do need, and Peter knows it. You see, to know about the majesty of Christ and to understand where to get that information, you have to know what the scriptures say. And Peter knew what they said because he had seen Christ, he had seen the clearest revelation of God to his people that was possible. And, and look at the words that he uses there in verses 16 and 17. He says, well, I've seen his power, I've seen his majesty, his glory, his coming. And he can't stop talking about the majesty, glory, and power of Christ. But it's very interesting what he does next. He doesn't just say, you know, and, and you should trust me because I saw it with my own eyes. He says, go back and listen to God's word about himself. You need the truth, not just because I say you do, but because God says you do. Verse 19, and we have a prophetic word made more sure. What's he talking about? The written truth of God's word about himself. You see, Peter understands that it is very necessary for us to have exposure to the word of God in order to grow. The subject matter that Peter was proclaiming to them is the ground and basis for all of spiritual life. And and that's connected back up to what he says in verse 4. He says, For by these God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Well, where are those promises kept? In the pages of Scripture. Where are those promises recorded? In the pages of God's book. So the way that we grow, if it's inherently connected to the promises of God, we must go back to the Scriptures and find the source of those promises in order to take advantage of them and realize them. Peter is making a case here for how that you and I desperately need the word of God. Now, I realize that I'm trying to make a case here for something that no one in this room disagrees with, 
okay? Everybody here today understands and would affirm the fact that we need the Word of God in order to grow. I would dare say it's why you're here this morning in church on Sunday rather than doing whatever it is people do who don't go to church. I don't know what that would be because this is all we do, right? We're here because we prioritize the Word of God and we know that we need it. So I get the fact that everybody here this morning understands this. But my challenge to us here in light of the truth of what God is saying is that we actually live this, right? That we actually take the time to expose ourselves to the word of God. And so oftentimes we can look at our daily Bible reading time or we can listen to a particular message and say, well, I didn't get much out of that. And, you know, my reading today was particularly dry. I mean, it was out of Leviticus or something. Like there was nothing there for me. And I I didn't get like the punchline thought that says, now go do this. And it really encouraged me. Is that actually a waste of time? I would say to you, it's not. And the reason that it's never a waste of time for you to spend time in the Word of God is because it is through the repetitive exposure to it that you begin to find a new foundation being laid in your life that allows you to think rightly the way God thinks and and you begin to expose yourself to the way He thinks about your life. Therefore, it is never a waste of time to spend time in the Word of God. It is always essential. And every sermon that you listen to, every time that you open up the Bible, you are laying a necessary foundation not only for how to live, but for how to think as well. Because what you definitely don't need more of are sophisticated myths We get plenty of those things every day on billboards and in the news and on television and in daily conversation with our coworkers. Plenty of sophisticated myths all around us. What we actually need is the word of God to impact us. And that requires repetitive, continual exposure. And so while we might affirm that we know that this is important, my challenge to us is let's actually go do it now. Peter says, I'm not going to hold out in front of you more stories. What I want to hold out in front of you is a reminder of what God says is about to happen when Christ comes back, that he's going to come back with power and with glory, and he is going to come back with great majesty. He's saying, think about those things and allow that to govern the way you live and the way you grow spiritually. So why is the scripture necessary? Because it has the answers that we need about who God is. It does its work because it's capable and well-suited and ready to meet our greatest need. You see, in order for us to grow, we go back to the main point. In order for us to grow, we have to know Christ. And in order to know Christ, we have to be exposed to the truths about him found in Scripture. The way we see him, the way we see the Father is in the pages of Scripture. and, And Peter knew this. He saw Christ in the flesh and he, he immediately grasped the importance of telling his readers about what he saw because it revealed the reality of who God was and therefore that's the foundation, the reality of Christ and the truth about him found within the pages of Scripture. And so in a world filled with bad information, it's the Bible alone that can reveal the nature of God and his expectations for our life. And it is unshakably certain And it does its work in us because it instantly meets our need. See, without the scriptures, you have no way to know Christ and therefore no way to see the Father and therefore no way to grow. And this is the reason why Peter says in his first epistle, 
1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This is the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. You see, in the mind of Christ himself, it's the word of God that is to be a priority in our life and is necessary in order for us to know Christ and therefore in order to grow spiritually. Okay? So it's the necessity of scripture that enables it to have a work in us because we have such a profound need. That's the first way that the word does its work. Follow me? Okay. Second way. Thank you. There's one person down here who did. (laughs) Second way. The authority of the word also enables its work. You see, the work of the word doesn't just happen because it meets our greatest need, but because it, it contains authority inherent within itself. It is not just effective because we have such a great need. It is effective because, because it is inherently powerful. It is inherently authoritative, okay? You see, the word of God is able to transform you because it is a self-contained authority. It, it sits as the sole foundation, not only for doctrine, but also for life. You see, the Bible, the Bible is not meant to be a book of suggestions, it is not meant to be a book of commonly accepted principles for living. It is, not a, it is not a self-help book. It is not a philosophy book. It is the record of God's word that he inspired for delivery to his people. And as such, it is the final and sole authority for your life. It sits above all of our experience, all of our knowledge, and all of our desire. And Peter himself is very uniquely qualified to make this point about the authority of God's word, because he himself was an eyewitness to God's word. He knew for certain that the word of God was way more authoritative than his own experiences. And and this is one of my favorite parts of this entire book, because you can kind of crawl inside Peter's brain and get a sense of what he was thinking as he, he recalls a very transformative experience from decades earlier in his life. And he's going to recount it here kind of as an example of the authority of God's word. He says, look, I saw God in the flesh myself. I am an eyewitness. And the word that he uses there in verse 16 for eyewitness is related to our word for ophthalmology. Okay? It's something that you've actually seen with your own physical eye. What Peter saw at the transfiguration back when Jesus was walking with him was not some kind of super spiritual vision that he just happened to fall asleep and dream up. No, it was something very physical, very real. I mean, he actually saw it with his own eyes. He didn't need any kind of corrective lenses to perceive it correctly. He, he saw it. And Peter puts himself on the witness stand to vouch for what he saw and the truth of Christ that was necessary. And this, this is a very important point because there is to be, what Peter is saying here in this next section is that there is to be one anchor point in your life that stands over everything else as your authority. You know, most people look to their worldview, their own priorities, their own ideas to be kind of that anchor point. And they make choices according to their worldview or their own ideas or their own priorities, but not us. You see, we look back to the word of God as our authority. The scripture does its work when it becomes the foundation that guides and governs. The word of God is the anchor point for life. It is certain and authoritative because it is a perfect and complete revelation of Christ who in turn reveals to us the Father. And that's what Peter says here. 
He says, for when, when he received, Jesus received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But we have a prophetic word made more sure. And that is so profound because what's Peter saying here? He's saying, look, I experienced the nature of Christ. I saw that his glory came from the Father. I mean, there was no better possible way for me to understand the reality of who Christ is and to know him more completely than what I saw with my own two eyes. And yet, there's something even more sure than that sight that Peter had. And it was the word of God that was recorded about the nature of Christ. And that's why Peter says here in verse 17, he, he says what God said from heaven on that day. He says, you know, God said on that day, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter points back to the words of God on that day as being the authority rather than his own experience of what he thought he perceived with his physical eyes. And he says, you see, it's the word of God that is authoritative, not just my experience or my perception of reality and what's going on. And, and that's really an amazing story. I think we've got time for this. Let's turn back there to Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. Really an incredible story where Jesus has taken his disciples up onto a mountain. And, and really, we can pretty precisely pinpoint this based upon the, the nature of the story around it. This would have been way up in the northernmost part of Israel. And it talks about a very high mountain, which in the northern part of Israel, in the district where Jesus was, as Scripture records, that there's only one high mountain. It's Mount Hermon. Very high, very tall. And you can go see it today if you go to Israel. You can stand there at the base of Mount Hermon and look up at it. It's actually kind of a cool thing to do that and read this text, knowing that on that mountain, in that place, God revealed himself to his people. Really an incredible experience, although you've got to be careful because today there are minefields all around it and there are signs that say careful of the minefield. So uh, take care if you do that. Um, but here, here's the text. That's just kind of an aside. Um, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Now, there's a lot of things that are really interesting about that passage. I mean, very profound story as Jesus peels the corner of his divine nature back and allows his three closest disciples to see the reality of who he was. And Peter then, and when you go back over to 2 Peter begins to reflect on that event. And there's really two things that stand out to him there. 
What stands out to him as he reflects upon it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, is that the honor and glory that he saw in the face of Christ came from God and therefore validated everything about the nature of Jesus that Jesus has been telling his disciples all this time. But the second thing that stands out to Peter, notice he doesn't really talk about what he saw. And in the narrative back in Matthew, when they saw Jesus and his glory, it was amazing for sure. But what really knocked them off their feet was when what happened? When God spoke. When the voice comes booming out of heaven and Peter hears the voice of God, when he hears the word of God for himself, that's when he really gets overwhelmed. And so for Peter here, as he reflects upon this in 2 Peter 1, decades later, what still makes a mark in his mind is not the experience of having been on that mountain that day. What really makes a mark in his mind is his recollection of having heard the voice of God. For him, it is all about the word of God being far more powerful than any experience he might have had on his own. You see, Peter understood that the word of God was superior to his own experience. And that's the point we're trying to make here, don't forget. Peter says the word of God is completely authoritative and trumps even my own experience of having been there on that mountain that day. It wasn't just the sight of Jesus as God that gripped Peter. What really got him about this experience was hearing the word of God from God himself as that voice came booming forth from heaven. Peter knew that he had heard the voice of God. He knew that he had heard the same voice that had inspired the Old Testament authors to say hundreds of times, thus says the Lord. And when we hear God speak, when his voice is given to us in his word, that is so much more certain than any kind of recollection or experience that we may have had elsewhere. You see, Peter knew that he was about to die as he penned these words. He knew that the time for his earthly visitation, his earthly dwelling, as he says in verse 14, was very quickly drawing to a close. He knew that his voice would be silenced. He knew that his recollection could be doubted and questioned. But what could not be silenced and what could not be doubted or questioned was the word of God that Peter had received from heaven itself. And he says, therefore, that is the authority. Not your experience and not my experience. The experience or the, the authority is the word of God. And here's the implication of that. And this is the second way that the word does its work. It doesn't just meet our need for knowing Christ. It also stands as the final authority and solid foundation for all of life. And that's a foundation that surpasses anything we may have experienced in our life. If the word of God is authoritative, which we know it to be, again, I'm not trying to convince you of things that you don't already believe, but if it is actually authoritative, there's a profound implication that comes with that. You must now submit yourself to it. If it's the authority, you've actually got to do what it says. That's the implication here. This is how the scriptures work. You see, when they speak, when we read them, when they are explained to us, the scriptures do their work by going to work and destroy our old foundations 
And they begin to reshape who we are and how we think and the nature of who Christ is and the nature of how he thinks. Because who he is and how he thinks perfectly reflects the Father. And that's how growth happens. So the, the scriptures do their work because they are authoritative. And there are very far-reaching implications here that are unlike anything else in our life. What are those implications? The implication of Scripture being authoritative is that we no longer trust our emotions to drive our decisions. We no longer trust our own ideas that have been warped, twisted, and reshaped by the world to drive our decisions. We no longer trust our own experiences to shape our, de our decisions. Instead, what is the only and final authoritative source that is more sure than even those things we may have perceived with our own eyes. It is the words of God. And that is our source of authority. And it is because the scriptures are so authoritative for us that we can fall back upon them and rest upon them and take refuge in them and when we are so confused by the tricky way that life has turned before us, we don't have to think, now, what does my experience tell us I should do? What are my emotions telling us that I, that I should do? We go back and we say to ourselves, what does the word of God say I must do? And then we submit ourselves accordingly. You see, this is the way that the word does its work in us. Because the word reveals to us the nature of Christ. And Christ reveals to us the nature of the Father. And that is how growth begins to take place in our life. So, we've seen so far that the necessity of the Word enables its work. We've seen that the authority of the Word enables its work. And next time when we come back together again, we're going to look at verses 19 through 21 and see how that it's also the sufficiency of the Word and the clarity of the Word that enable it to have such a profound impact in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know it, that we can trust it, and that it is the guide and guard for our lives. We can depend upon it to show us Christ. And ultimately, it is he after whom we pursue. And it's the knowledge of him that brings to us grace and peace and growth. And so we're so very grateful for the precious gift of your promises that we have in this book before us. So may that govern our lives this week. May we be very aware of our need. May we be very aware of Scripture's authority and may we place that which it commands us to do above and prioritized above that which we might desire to do on our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.